Welcome to the Leaders Edge podcast. I'm Sandy Laycox, Editor-in-Chief of Leaders Edge. In this episode of our Personal Lines podcast, Associate Editor Chris Han talks with Pamela Wheeler, Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer for NFP. Pamela talks about her early career in the sports industry, including with the WNBA, and how she got her first job as a legal intern with the Giants using her retirement plan skills. She discusses her move from sports to insurance and how understanding DEI as a business imperative and changing the systems and processes within the industry are crucial for success. I hope you enjoy this great conversation. We are here for today's Personal Lines interview with Pamela Wheeler. She is the Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer at NFP, and you are in New York. Is that correct, Pamela? Yes. First of all, I'm, I'm reasonably confident that you're the first person I've interviewed for this, this Personal Lines Q&A uh, who, who led the Women's National Basketball Players Association. Um, yes. so <laughs> tell me about that job and how it came to be. Uh, so I was I guess, the founding director for the WNBPA and um, the players unionized, the WNBA players unionized in 1998 and they selected the NBA Players Association as their collective bargaining agent and the NBPA then hired me to come on and run the WNBPA and so I did that for 15 years. Wow. And you had some background in that, uh, that, that discipline. Yes. Yep. 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 Tell me a little yep. bit about that. So right after law school, well, while I was in law school during my first, after my first year, I interned with the San Francisco Giants. And my second year law school, I interned with the Oakland A's. So I knew I wanted to go into sports field. And um, after law school, I worked, I went to work for Bob Wolf Associates, which was what we would probably think of now as Bob Wolf being like the first mega agent. Right, and, right, right. Uh, so I worked for Bob Wolf Associates, which was then subsequently purchased by Arnold Communications. So I moved from the athlete representation side to the sports and entertainment, devising strategies for, for Fortune 500 companies. Then I went to the Continental Basketball Association, which predates the NBDL or the G League as the official developmental league of the NBA. Wow. That's a long history. That's a, that's a, <laughs> that's a lot. Um, were you a basketball player? I played basketball, but I certainly was not good enough to go ever go to the WNBA or anything like that. Plus, uh-huh. I I was too short. So, um, and and of course, at that time when I was playing in high school, there was no future in it here in the United States. The WNBA, you know, like twenty years away from happening. Right, right. Where did you grow up? I grew up in New Rochelle, New York. Tell me about growing up in New Rochelle, New York. Yeah, I guess it's just like every other kid, you know, you, you kind of don't know anything other than what you know, you know, yeah. we were friends and uh, we knew we were in New York, but we also knew that we were like not quite in the city. So yeah. I remember my first subway ride when I was 17 years old. And that's when I felt like a real, uh, a real New Yorker because he you know, <laughs> doesn't go to Westchester. So um, that's when I, I think I became a real New Yorker when I rode the subway for the first time. <laughs> do you remember did you have thoughts aspirations of what you wanted to be when you grew up when you were a young girl yeah so my father tells this story I'm, I think it's more a cocktail party story because I don't remember <laughs> it. Uh, 
he he tells me and, and he tells me all the time that I told him when I was six I wanted to, I was going to be a sports lawyer. No way! That's so funny. Yeah. <laughs> wow, how prophetic! Okay, um, but after law school, what were you thinking career wise? Well, like I said, I knew I wanted. I I knew when I was an undergrad that I wanted to go into. I wanted to go into sports field. Okay. Uh, but certainly not like we have now where where there are sports programs at different schools, right? right? Even I remember in law school, when I was in law school, there were really three career paths. You either went to the DA's office, you did community service work, or you went to corp into a, a corporate law firm. And I remember going into the career services office and telling them that, that I wanted to go into sports. And they said to me, well, you know, good luck. Let us know how it works out. <laughs> Maybe we can help the next person because <laughs> at that point there were no sports programs in school yeah. or anything like that. So yeah. I was kind of on my own uh, and doing it. And at that point there was this book, this really big book that was called how to get a job in sports. And it just sort of listed all of the sports entities at the time, all the perils wow. apparel companies and contact people within those um, companies and so I just remember writing to every single person in the book, because that was when we were actually writing letters to people. And I wrote to them, and I always said that wherever the that company was, that I was going to be there in the next two weeks, and could they meet with me? And so that's how I actually got the job with the Giants, because I told them I was going to be in San Francisco in two weeks. And so, and so you me. were. And, and, and I made it my business to get to San Francisco. Um, that sounds like a rather daunting thing to, uh, to, to, you know, to, to basically be told, good luck, you're on your own. Yeah. That, that pretty much was it. Pretty much was it. And, and that year I got 501 rejections. 501. Wow. <laughs> but I got one job with the Giants and that's all I needed. What was that job? So I, I in, ended up interning with the um, in the legal department okay. at the Giants, and um, the Giants at that point they had just gotten new ownership, and their new human resources director. Um, the only I wouldn't say deficiency, but the only area that she didn't know much about was retirement plans, and uh, rewind to between undergrad and um, law school. I went to Chase Manhattan Bank and did one of those executive management year-long rotational programs. Mm -hmm. And then I was actually assigned once I completed the um, program to the pension trust department. So I happened to just have some experience in pension plans, which was the one area that the human resources um, director didn't have experience. So they hired me for as a legal intern for the summer. Uh -huh. Wow, okay. I'm going to back up a little bit. Who were your childhood heroes? Um, my childhood heroes were a lot of sports stars. Um, you know, Dr. J absolutely uh, adored him. He meant everything that, you know, sports meant at the time and still does, you know, class personified, yeah. um, taking the game to another level. And then people like Anita DeFrance, who was one of the first women uh, who was... Um, woman of color on the Olympic International Olympic Committee. 
And so Anita DeFrance was someone I looked up to very early on. Um, I looked up to people like um, Elaine Weddington Stewart. She was the first assist black woman who was the first assistant general manager of the Boston Red Sox. Wow. So those those women, um, you know, I looked up to because I was like, I wanted to be like them. Right, right, right. Wow. You had a <clears throat> substantial career in the sports field, in the sports world. So why NFP? What was the appeal? <laughs> it seems like a big leap. It does. I know to some people it says like, how in the world do you go from sports to <laughs> uh, to insurance and financial services? But um, NFP is actually, we have a very uh, substantial sports and entertainment practice. Okay. So NFP wasn't foreign to me because NFP is the broker record for the players associations and for- Okay, okay. Our sports practice is pretty large. And so I was very familiar with NFP. And when they were looking for someone to um, not only devise, but drive a diversity and inclusion strategy globally for the entire enterprise, it was something that I knew I wanted to do. And after we had a myriad of conversations, um, I think we were all in agreement that I could help drive a diversity, equitable inclusion and uh, belonging strategy throughout the entire enterprise. So let me ask you about that uh, that mission and that process, because obviously that's been a big discussion. Uh, you're in a, a, an industry that is, uh, as, as the cliche goes, pale, male, and stale. Uh, and everybody I talk to, when I ask them, you know, what's one thing you'd like to change? Not everybody, almost everybody, mentions uh, diversifying the workforce. So tell me about that from your perspective, going into this new industry uh, that is traditionally male and white. Um, how do you, wh wh where, do you where do you begin? And, and <laughs> tell me about that project. Yeah, so part of it is not just looking at it from the perspective of diversifying the workforce, right? Because that, that, that in and of itself doesn't really have any lasting impact. So it really for us is about understanding DEIB as a business imperative that our business is gonna be better because of it. Um, and that our our change has to come from, from the systems and cultures within the industry, right? If we keep the same systems and cultures and we just go to HBCUs and recruit people, that's not gonna help us because all we're gonna do is increase our numbers, but then we're not gonna be able to develop those people once they get here. We're not gonna be able to help them prosper. We're not gonna be able to in incorporate them within the business. So our perspective is really, it, it, it has to be broader than just diversifying the workplace because that that in and of itself doesn't mean anything. How are we going to become a better provider for our clients, our, um, our partners, all of our stakeholders? And how do we provide that value alignment with our with those stakeholders? Because they too have people want to do business with like-minded people, right? And so they want to do business with people who they feel have the same values that they have, that are committed to diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, and not just um, as the young people would say, from a program, miss me with the programs, right? From a programming mm -hmm. point, but really about how do we create those systems and cultures within the industry uh, collectively? Because I'm very, we're very big on that, and that's one of the things 
that we work with, you know, with CIAB, with NIA, with BIC, with um, Alpha, all the organizations that we partner with, because we do believe that um, individually, we're not going to be able to move the needle, but collectively, we will be able to. So it's really about changing and, and addressing the systems and cultures that make the business what, you know, that have traditionally made the business what it is. And then how do we go about addressing that change? So let me ask you about that process, changing culture. That, that sounds like uh, turning a really big ship around. Uh, right. How, how do you how do you do that? Let, even just specifically at NFP, what, what are you doing there? You know, it really is about understanding it first. Like you got to have a recognition that, you know, we're we're designed to help certain people be successful. Right. And how do we change that dynamic? And so part of that is, is things like how do, how do you view success? Right. So if you traditionally view success as bottom line, revenue, that's it. Well, then you're not going to take into account things like other other cultures that do things better. So for example, women have higher retention rates, right? They may not have the same revenue stream than some of our wealth businesses. They have higher retention rates. So how about let's change our culture and put a value, a quantitative value on retention, right? So that recognizes something beyond just our bottom line. And, and because at the end of the day, that will impact our bottom line. There's something to say about the comfort in being able to go to sleep at night, knowing that Pam's clients aren't walking out the door every every year that we don't have to go to RFP. Chris may be making a couple more dollars in revenue, but every year we got to go out RFP on his and every year we got to make, we got to do whatever we can to keep those clients. And so how do you view success differently? And those, those are cultural things. Those are systemic things that we're talking about. What's the culture of developing people, right? Or do we, or do we have a culture of not just performance management or performance reviews, but actually do we have a culture of developing our underrepresented people? Are they in the right um, jobs? Are they doing the right things? And so those are the types of things when you talk about cultural and systemic that we continue to look at to make sure that our business is adopting is adapting to all of the cultures. Do we have a culture that um, is welcoming for people who have neurodiverse issues? Are we examining those things? So those are the types of cultural and systemic issues I'm talking about. You're a member of the CIAB uh, DEI Advisory Committee and Joel Wood, uh, I was talking with Joel and, and he mentioned a meeting that you were at recently where this conversation came up, the, the, I guess the whole mission, the whole purpose of, of any DEI program. And there was a, a one side that said it was all about, you know, the bottom line and, and, and making the company more profitable. And others said it was all about uh, making the workforce look more like the rest of America. And then you came into the conversation. So tell me, tell me if, if you recall that conversation, tell me, tell me about that and tell me what, what, where you were coming from. Yes, I think, you know, sometimes we, we maybe oversimplify this thing here, but, uh, you know, sometimes I think we, we think things have to be either or. So I think mm -hmm, the conversation mm -hmm. was, is, is, do we approach DEI from the position of a business imperative or we do, do we approach it from it's the right thing to do? And I don't think that those are mutually exclusive, 
right? It, it is indeed the right thing to do, but it's also uh, a business imperative. But when, when we talk about it being a business imperative and talk about um, making the business case for DEIB, we're not leaving those other things behind, right? We're not, we're not saying that we're strictly looking at the bottom line and we're not, we don't wanna be a good corporate citizens, uh, corporate citizen, we want to do both. And so I don't think that they're mutually exclusive. And so I think sometimes we, the, the conversation may be going in one direction or another as if they can't operate on the same plane, as mm -hmm, if mm -hmm. it can't be the right thing to do, um, but it's also going to make us money, right? And, and we also understand that, that it's just not a bottom line issue. We're just not looking at the bottom line. We're looking at the fact that it is going to make us better. You know, we're going to enter... How can not how can entering into new markets be a bad thing, right? <laughs> if, we, if we're constantly saying, okay, uh, this industry has traditionally been in the white middle class market, right? That is a good thing, and we've made money there. But who in their right mind would say, let's not open up and expand our view of the world and let's not try to get into black markets. Let's not try to get into Asian markets. Let's not try to get into LGBTQ markets, military veteran, veteran markets, the dis uh, disability community. How can that be a bad thing? And eventually what's gonna happen is opening up and going into those markets is gonna increase our bottom line. It is gonna enhance our value alignment with our clients. Mm -hmm. So those things are going, to, I think those things work mutually. I think they work together. So I'm sort of a proponent of both. We don't have to segregate them. Tell me about your work on the on the CIAB committee. Uh, uh, how come you wanted to be a part of that, first of all? You know, I, I don't know if it's because of my, uh, my union background, but I really do believe that we are going to be better collectively than individually. So um, NFP, we're part of a number of alliances, and one of them is um, CIAB, because I do think, one, this is the one area of the business where we are not in competition with each other. We are really trying to work together, um, understanding that we are only going to move the needle systemically and culturally by working together. And, you know, we, the only way to do that is to be a part of places like CIAB. Yeah. And so the moment I came to NFP, and so that there was an opportunity, I wanted to make sure we were part of that and want to continue to help with the collaborations across the industry as well as outside because we're, we're a member of other um, collaborations and alliances that are outside of the insurance industry. And I think that's the only way we're going to make this the type of change and, and long lasting impactful change that we need to by working together. Yeah. I'm going to go back to your your career move from from your sports career to now your insurance career what's what's been the biggest surprise for you in that transition or maybe the biggest um the biggest adjustment maybe you've you've had to make so you know it's funny um i don't i don't really ha i haven't had to make many adjustments right mm -hmm. i mean i've been creating spaces for diversity equity inclusion and belonging my entire career just been doing it in a different industry yeah. right so i mean if you when you think about the wnba and when we talk about systemic and cultural change when you think about it the wnba started by an organization that operates a male sports league 
And they wanted to operate the WNBA pretty much the same way they operated the male sports league. So those are systemic and cultural issues that we had to address. You know, right. you it, the same way that we're talking about, um, you know, middle-aged white men being successful in the insurance industry and how do we make ways for other cultures and other people to be successful within that. It's the exact same thing. How did we how do we work to make the WNBA and the WNBA players and that fan base, et cetera, successful really in a league that was sort of designed after an all male league? Okay, so it's kind of the same thing. I'm just doing right. it in a different industry. Pamela, anything I didn't ask that that I should have, anything that you wanted to talk about that, that I didn't raise? No, I think I think that's pretty much it. All right. Listen, I really, really appreciate your time and your help with this. <laughs> Thanks. That was Associate Editor Chris Hand with NFP Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer Pamela Wheeler. I hope you enjoyed their conversation. For more personalized podcasts, go to leadersedge.com.